My friend Larry and I are both happy to admit we don't have answers and relent humility to life experiences. When you're paying attention, you learn about the world and yourself. So we're calling this episode, We Have No Answers, because what you'll hear is two people shooting the shit and talking about lots of random things. You join us mid-chat because Larry always has interesting stories about his life, and I've wanted him to get in front of my mic for a while. I was hoping he'd share stories I know that he's told me before, like when he was in Cambodia and the killing fields, because they're fascinating. When I asked what we should call this episode, there wasn't anything we could name it, really. We're talking about life experiences, not knowing, and not having answers. I hope you enjoy being a fly on the wall. We're mostly just laughing. This is, you know, this is a little bit like, I think I've told you about this, that one time I took ayahuasca. Oh, yeah, we did talk about that. And there was a guy there who was, uh, makes documentary movies. And so I signed a release going in because I didn't really know what was going to happen. Yeah. And so I signed a release and just got pounded, you know, I mean, it was brutal and he filmed, I'm sure I'm like the, the main character in this whole thing. Oh no, really? (laughs) He hasn't finished the movie yet. Hasn't come out yet. And I'm kind of like, oh damn, man. I I think I'm the main character. Everybody else, you know, I've never even smoked pot. I've never done anything. My body's as pure as the driven snow. Straight in for ayahuasca. And so, you know, I've watched a couple Netflix things on hallucinogens and read this book called Stealing Fire, talking about hallucinogens. And it's like... There's uh, psilocybins at one level kind of thing. And pretty much ayahuasca is off the chart, you know, so. I've listened to a lot of Terrence McKenna talk about his experiences. And I can't imagine just going straight in for ayahuasca, not having ever listened to anything Terrence McKenna has talked about in his experience, his many experiences um, like you can just play YouTube video after YouTube video of Terrence McKenna talking about his experiences. You should. It's fascinating. Didn't we save? You sent me some links. You know, life gets in the way. Yeah. Well, you but have some driving in your future. I do. So maybe Terrence McKenna maybe, is yes. just jump right in. Just pick one and just jump right in. Yeah. He explains Santa Claus and everything. <laughs> Yeah, ayahuasca was like the best of times, the worst of times. That's what I hear. I've never even done mushrooms. I really would like to. I've heard so many wonderful things, as long as you do it in the right environment. Yes. I've seen some documentaries about people who have terminal cancer, taking psilocybin, and they get rid of their fear. They're good. Life is good. Mm-hmm. And it isn't a momentary thing. It's one, two, or maybe three sessions mm-hmm. with a psychiatrist, and their quality of life goes through the ceiling wow. with it. <laughs> but then again, ayahuasca was a whole different deal. There is 
an ayahuasca center now somewhere in South America. Yeah, Peru. That's, oh, okay. That is probably their main tourist attraction anymore as far as I know. is <laughs> Not Machu Picchu. Yeah, you go and you do ayahuasca. And, and then you go to Machu Picchu. Phony shamans there mm. doing their thing. Uh, and so you have to be really, really careful. I had a shaman, but it wasn't in Peru. Would we be ruining your movie, <laughs> since you're the main character? Would we be ruining your movie if we talked about <laughs> your experience? No, I don't think so. But that said, and what you were talking about, that you wanted to try mushrooms... And I'm very curious about it, hence the ayahuasca experience, even though from what I've read, it wouldn't be anywhere near the same. But I believe in the city of Oakland, California, now at the marijuana dispensaries, you can buy mushrooms. Hmm. But then again, you know, you got to be really careful. When I was working in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, it was very controlled there. And that's what I need is a very controlled environment. Yeah. So that you have a measure. So it's just safe. It isn't a reckless thing. Yeah. At home, if the University of California were to do a study on microdosing LSD, I would do it. Hmm. You know, in a clinical setting, I would definitely do it because it just seems like the upside is so big on that. Yeah, it makes sense to do anything like this measured because if things aren't really tidy, it's just a crapshoot. What's the point? Right. What's the point? But because my work is somewhat creative. I didn't know that. Yes. And I am not a creative person by nature. I think that things like that would, in the proper setting, would heighten my thinking to where I would be in the zone. Mm-hmm. And I can get in the zone easy enough. You know what your last name is in my phone? No. Engineer. Oh, great. <laughs> You're Larry Engineer. Larry the Engineer. Well, that Not even funny. the Engineer. Larry, Larry Engineer. Engineer. <laughs> toot, toot. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so psilocybin is something that's on my list. And this is so bizarre because here I am, 63 years old. Never done anything except for the one dip into, you know, ayahuasca. And it's like, maybe I should try some of these things. Just simply because I've done the research on them. I'm not going to admit my age on any episode. (laughs) Once I hit, like, probably my late 40s, I don't give a shit what anybody thinks. I hope I get there. You know, why waste your time with it? I don't know. I feel like there's... A few reasons, actually. One of them is older white women. (laughs) It's a type. And I am not that type. And so I hope I never become one of them. I hope I never look like one. I hope I never act like one. There are some heroes, older white women heroes, but there are so many that I serve on a regular basis. Oh, God, no. Okay. Moving God, on. no. No, I'm like <clears throat> Brene Brown. I was trying yeah. to think of a woman that's older than me and white, and Brene Brown was the first one to come to mind. So, no, Hillary Some Clinton of her stuff is not is very one of good. my heroes. Yeah. She is, her podcast 
I used to listen to it sporadically. Some of it was duds, but some of it was just jaw dropping uh-huh. how good it is. Yeah. Every now and then I'm like, pause. I have to write that down. That's a statement that she made for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't used to listen to her that much with her very first TED talk that went huge. I was super impressed, but that was it. That was the end of it. And everybody was like, oh, Brene Brown, Brene Brown. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll get there. And so I didn't give her the attention that everybody else did until probably this last year. She has two podcasts. She has a film on Netflix, too, which oh, is she very does? good. Oh, I need to watch yeah, that. Yeah, and it's where she's on stage speaking to a crowd. Oh. And so it's, what, 90 minutes or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. Her two podcasts are Unlocking Us and Dare to Lead. Mm-hmm. And She talks about that in the Netflix film. And I really enjoy both of them. She also talks about the size of her butt. Oh, she does? <laughs> I don't know the size of her butt, so. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, she's pretty funny. Parts yeah. Of it. Yes. Yeah, she talks about a lot of the things that, and maybe that's one of the reasons I avoided her, is because I had to do so much healing of many of the things that she talks about, and I needed to do it without input from others. I know that sounds a really strange thing. But I needed to understand me before I could relate to others. And so that was yeah. quite a few years for me. I would say maybe even six years that I would only hear bits and pieces. I wasn't tuning into lots of podcasts. I was just trying to figure my shit out. Now I'm really happy to listen and I'm like, oh, this is my jam. I love this stuff. But can you not really OD on it? But can you get caught in the loop? You know, the idea is to listen to someone, grow from it, and graduate away. Yes. Not to be in a Brene Brown. Does it make me sound right? Kind of thing. But does it make me sound arrogant to say I regularly feel when I listen to many things like, oh yeah, I was there once. I remember what that was like. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, I can relate to many things because I dealt with that, too. But mm-hmm. I don't deal with any more. You know, I'm not desperate. I'm like, good point. And not that I'm past everything that ever gets said. I'm not saying that either. But I've had to deal with a lot of my shit. One of the things I've said in a couple of podcasts is I tend to find that when I have healed or moved on from something, talking about it is no longer tethered to tears. And so for me, that's an absolute sign. I'm better than I used to be because I can talk about it and I I don't even have to cry. The fact that I can talk about it first and then I don't cry talking about it. It just feels like something to talk about. No big deal. If it's tethered to tears, you can know that it's still very sensitive for me, even though I am a crier. Like Mm -hmm. I'm tell me a sad story and that's it. I'm crying. I think that comes with age. The older you get, the more emotional you become. Yeah. I have found my empathy only grows. My empathy doesn't Mm -hmm. get smaller. Mm -hmm. But also, I talk about this in my intonation training. The more you treat people with respect, whether you feel it or not, the more you speak with a respectful intonation, the more you feel respect, the more your empathy grows. It's cause and effect for me. Absolute cause and Mm. effect. I don't know. I'm not that deep. 
here we are, we're talking. I want you to know that my life has been very, very easy. So, <laughs> Who has an easy life? Are you being sarcastic? I, no, I have had a very easy life. I understand that. Huh. I've had. Elaborate on why, what factors made your life easy? Well, I had good parents, certainly. Huge. That is huge. I had a stable upbringing. Um, certainly, I've had wants that have exceeded, you know, needs and wants and all that. But I have never been without in my nice. life. And in my younger years, kind of going back, I used to always question myself. Would I survive? Would I flourish if I were really, truly challenged? And so that became a quest to put myself into those situations where I would be truly challenged, albeit in maybe somewhat of a controlled setting, but not necessarily. Certainly short term to where I had the ability to some extent to pull the ripcord on it and step away. Yeah, my life has been super, super simple. Hmm. And so I've had to step into things to figure out who I am. Uh -huh. To experience just enough hardship to test the waters. Um, or have you avoided hardship? In my personal life, I have avoided hardship. In my, what is the term I'm looking for? In my go away for a month, I've sought it out. Because you know there's an end to this. I'm going for a month. I can. Well, there wouldn't always be an end to it. It could be terminal is a thing. But I couldn't go through life on the cruise. Mm -hmm. I had to find out what I was made of. Mm -hmm. For instance, I've done eight Ironmans. That's 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and then a marathon, 26.2 huh. mile marathon. The Ironman that I was most content with, absolutely felt like, uh, was the one where I broke. The one that I didn't finish. The only one that I didn't finish. Because I knew that day I had left everything on the course. Huh. I had taken myself as far as I could go. And I had found where my limit was. Huh. All the rest of them, the ones you finish, all you do is look back at that, look at the data. How could I have improved? How could I have been faster? What little things could I have done? What could I have done with my nutrition? What could I have done in my training? When you finish, it is just nothing but utter disappointment. Everybody thinks... Friends who have never done Ironman. So you do an Ironman, you have this elation. No, it's total disappointment. Why because is that? I could have been 30 seconds faster in the swim. I should have not, you know, because in the swim you can draft. I could have maybe chosen a different path and drafted into a different group on the bike. Maybe I should have hydrated more and I wouldn't have gotten a cramping situation all that. But do you think most people do this or only the personality type that is a shoulda, coulda, woulda? All my friends, oh. everybody I train with, everybody, no one is satisfied with a finish. Wow. That's sad. Yeah. I remember one of my friend's wives, I told that to her and her husband kind of fessed into it too. But the only time I was satisfied was when... You were totally fucked. Totally I I was so 
<laughs> I was so wiped out. Uh, it was a super, super hot day. Just perspired way more than I had ever had in training. And I'm about halfway into the marathon. Both quadriceps cramped at the same time as both hamstrings and, you're not and both eater. calves. So everything is just locked up. Ugh. I mean, just like, ah, and it was like, it was done. It was done. And on that day, and it was only that day. You were that satisfied. Was all I could do. And you felt content? I felt content. I felt content to this day. Wow. I can kind of imagine that that would be one of the only things you could feel, but I'm totally surprised by just finishing an Ironman and not being like, fuck yeah, I did that. Nice. I think I, I understand that from looking at it from the outside, but me and my guys, the guys that I would train with, and we never really talked about this. It's just disappointment. Huh. And then when it's over with, so there's a, a syndrome, it's called post-event depression syndrome. And that's the other thing, hmm. is is that when you spend, generally for an Ironman, you spend six months training. And so it's pretty much all-consuming. And then when it's over with, what now? Yeah. You know, and I remember reading about astronauts who train for years and years for a moon landing or something. And then they do it, and now, mm -hmm. you know what? That was the other side, yeah. But yeah, I can imagine. But, yeah, and then yeah. you know, climbing mountains. That's another thing is is that everybody thinks when you get to the top of a big mountain, it's some big elation. Yes, we did it. No, everybody's thinking the same thing. How the hell am I going to get down? <laughs> so I'm halfway there. I'm halfway. Yeah, and uh -huh. I have the most difficult parts still to do. Uh huh. Yes. Yeah, so. I hiked Temp as a high school senior, and it was awful. And getting down was equally awful. Yeah. <laughs> so I've never wanted to hike mountains. Do a big mountain, yeah. But that was another thing, you know. That was another challenge. And that oh. was one where you're in Central Asia, or you're in South America, or you're someplace else. And... It was the only time in my life where, because, you know, growing up here in America, there's all kinds of safety nets. And it was the first time that I really was confronted with really, really hurting. And maybe there were times when I was by myself. And it's like, you're the only one that's going to get you out of here. And I don't think a lot of people ever experience that. Hmm. It's a life or death situation. And unlike Iron Man's, where if you bonk, there's people to pick you up. In Central Asia, especially when you're by yourself, there's no one to pick you up. And even if there are other people, they are so depleted too that they really can't do much for you. But most people have never been in a situation where they have to struggle hard just to survive. And those things were great lessons for me. Maybe I'll detract a little bit. I was climbing four mountains in Ecuador. And there was an older guy who was part of our group. And he was a very successful guy. Very, very successful. Very well-to-do. And he climbed two of the mountains with us. He didn't do the last two, the hardest ones. 
But he asked me one day, he goes, why do you do this? And I said, I don't know. And he said, when you were climbing yesterday, let me tell you the way you felt. Let me tell you the let way you felt. Let me tell you, you the way you felt. Interesting. Okay. You probably had a really bad headache. Probably you were breathing as harder, harder than you ever have. Your heart was pounding. Every fiber of your being was telling you to turn around and go back. This is stupid. But you're in a group. You're all roped up. And you just kept going. And you put all that aside. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And he said, you know, when I start to doubt myself, either in my faith, in my spiritual life, emotional life, work life, family life, when I start to question myself, I know it's time to go to the mountains. Because if I can push myself through that, I can push myself through anything else. Hmm. And I think today in America and in most of the Western world, most people never have the opportunity to really push themselves. I think that we have to push ourselves, not just that physical thing, but spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. Intellectually, especially. Because we only ever experience growth when you're absolutely challenged. When you push it, mm -hmm. you know, if I had gone on the normal life, my easy, easy life, then there would have been things missed. You said something. You didn't think that most people experience hardship. Well, I remember thinking, I think most people do, but it comes through shitty parents because you didn't have shitty parents. Mm -hmm. They do experience it, just a whole different type of hardship. And so their struggles become very local. Right. right issues so. because of dad, issues because right. of mom, issues yeah. that are very central to who they are. Whereas struggles I saw you going toward yeah. was... I had to create mine. Yeah. They were never yeah. given to me. Yeah. Which is so good, right? Yeah. That's I mean, cool. I'm so grateful and so thankful that I got the opportunity to choose my challenges mm -hmm. and not have them given to me. Yeah. Um, you're a really good example of why I believe in reincarnation, because everybody lives such different lives. Mm -hmm. Everybody lives different lengths of time. We have different struggles. We have different lessons. We have different issues. Mm -hmm. So. Let's use your life as compared to a story I've told on my podcast called Ramona. That episode is only like, I don't know, five minutes long because it's just a tiny little story mm -hmm. about this little girl in Romania that had AIDS. So she was born and abandoned, left in a hospital that reused needles over and over until they were too dull to use. And so I met her at two. She died at three. Her whole life was pretty much spent in a crib when an American volunteer wasn't holding her. She was an orphan, so she was ignored. Sure. Sure. And so her life, in air quotes, was nothing. No experiences, no lessons, no ease, no hardship. Like literally nothing, just struggle. And it's not even a colorful struggle. 
It's a very specific one struggle. And I just can't respect the theology that there's a God that somehow knows this is all you need. You're going to go into this situation. And in fact, the fact that it's even contrived is is ridiculous to me. But good luck with that. All right, you're done. Let's say it's not contrived. Oh, shit for you. You didn't get to learn anything. Oh, well, that's the end. Mm -hmm. And I personally have seen many people struggle with issues in life I just don't seem to have. Not that it's obvious how I escape them. I have no idea how I escape certain issues. Because well, there's I a lot of luck. <laughs> I didn't have an easy childhood, yeah. not by any means. So I have plenty of issues. But there are a lot of issues I don't have that other people I know do have. And it's like, well, where did that come from? I just think it makes so much sense that there are multiple lives. How many? Who knows? But every life is going to have different issues and you're going to learn different lessons and lessons you've already learned in another life, you may or may not have presented to mm -hmm. you in sure. the next one. Sure, sure. Let's take this both ways. Your life, you could either have had many lives and already learned lots of lessons. And so in this iteration of Larry, engineer, you didn't have to learn a lot of those lessons. They're already inside you. or you happen to luckily be born to two people who really give a shit about being a parent. So you didn't end up with a lot of lessons to learn. And it is your first rodeo. Maybe. It could be either way. First or last. Yeah. So. That, yeah, exactly. It just makes so much sense. If you have to search for your lessons or your hardships or your big experiences, I think I used the word hard earlier. Doesn't that just really point to multiple lives? I feel like that. And maybe it's yeah, because my attention I, I, I is on so. it. I think so. I think that, you know, if there is a greater being, we're definitely put here to learn something. Exactly. Because that's one thing that we're mostly cut out mm -hmm. for the whole experience. You know, there is a school of thought that we actually choose our life. I, I just can't figure out why I didn't pick being Tom Brady. Right. <laughs> Having a supermodel wife and being, you know, a 40 something year old NFL quarterback with a zillion rings. And there's probably a huge line someplace wanting to step into that. The Tom Brady line. Yeah, the Tom Brady line. But yeah. I, I think it's we... silly that anybody could choose because that would insinuate we could see the life we would have already lived. That just seems a little bit silly. Yeah. I have this little saying that I tell myself, if you go through life trying to avoid discomfort, discomfort is going to find you with a vengeance. Mm -hmm. And here in the West, we're looking to be comfortable all the time. It's true. Whereas, like we said earlier, your spiritual, your mental, your emotional, your physical, you've got to push it and challenge yourself all the time. You've got to be uncomfortable all the time. Otherwise, that discomfort is going to find you and it won't be in your control. Somehow that all ties into what we've said. You reminded me while you were saying that something we said earlier today, which is people just don't know that they can't have whatever they want whenever they want it. We were actually talking about coffee shops and that isn't how we worded it. But my brain goes to the entitled white woman 
who doesn't understand that the Suez Canal mm. having a blockage is going to affect her ability to have mm-hmm. her fancy refresher. Mm-hmm. Yes, the sense of entitlement. Yeah. Is kind of where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I thought of that while you were saying it. This whole lifestyle that we live here seems so shallow. People click and get what they want. And now you don't even have to go out for takeout. Anything you want can come to your door. It's amazing that people can't see what they have now as compared to 10 years ago. Just 10. Mm-hmm. forget 20 it's a whole different world it's because we we don't see and i get caught in this we don't see what we have we see what we don't exactly yeah you know and we really have to spend time having appreciation for what we have yeah i'm talking about it all the time to people around me i probably have podcast episodes too many where i throw it in where i just absolutely believe we've changed and we've changed so much. I'm shocked that more people aren't also in awe. I see the differences and I call people that are my age and older, I call us bridges, bridges to the world we're now in and the world we used to be in. And when all the bridges are dead, we're going to be a world full of people who only know entitlement. Mm -hmm. Because if you only know entitlement, the slightest hardship is horrible for you. Right. And see, that's, I think that's kind of coming full circle again. That's where I was growing up in the ideal family. How many siblings do you have? Three. I'm the forgotten middle child. <laughs> Two sisters. But I can't say I didn't have an appreciation, but certainly... You're aware that you had it easy. Yes. And for some reason, somewhere deep in my mind, and I don't know where it came from, I had to find out how hard I could push myself. Hmm. how hard I could go. And maybe in some ways I did that. Would you say the 90s were one of the ways that you pushed yourself to see? Certainly. Because I remember talking to you about your hindsight after experiences in the 90s. I'm trying not to tell a story. And, (laughs) And you were kind of like, oh, God, that was dangerous. Well, let me tell you a story that I'm sure isn't the one that you want to hear. But There was a time when I was climbing Mount McKinley, now Mount Denali. I was with two other guys. We were at high camp. We decided to make a run at the summit. We made it up onto the Denali Ridge and got caught in just a horrible storm. We had a few options. One was to go up. One was to find, and we did find, a snow cave that someone else had constructed up on this saddle in, I don't know how high it was, 19,000 feet or something. Hmm. But it was probably, you know, 30 below zero with at least a steady 50 mile an hour wind and kind of at times whiteout conditions. And the other option was to go down. And then one of the guys started to experience altitude sickness And there's a couple different kinds. And his was the kind of punch drunk, goofy kind. Hmm. And so we decided to go down. Both the guys' names were Charlie. And so there was young Charlie and old Charlie. And old Charlie was the guy having the troubles. And so he was in the middle of our rope team. 
And I was on the back. Young Charlie was in the front. And we're heading down on this long, long traverse. So there's a steep slope, huge crevasses below us. You know, it's so mind-numbingly cold. We're heading down again on this long traverse. And we had to move fast. And so we had one piece of protection. And it's called a fluke. And it's like a piece of metal that you drop down into the snow. If someone were to fall, then that would potentially hold. And so we had the fluke. Young Charlie at the front would set the fluke. And then we would all walk past it. And then I would pull it out, clip it onto the rope, and would send it forward. You know, clip it on with a carabiner and send it forward. That was kind of the thing. Do it a, a million times. We're heading down, and I hear old Charlie say, falling. He just yelled, falling. So at that point, young Charlie and I, you don't look. You just drop into a defensive position, shoving your the shaft of your ice axe down into the ice and kind of holding it to take that shock of old Charlie when the rope hits. The tug of old Charlie. Yeah, the tug of old Charlie. And I remember looking under my right arm and I saw him like cartwheeling down the slope. It was like, this is it. This is it. It's over. He's going to take us down and we're going to go into that crevasse and that's it. I didn't have an adrenaline rush. There was no speeding up of my heart rate. I was totally good with it. Hmm. The rope hit and Charlie stopped and we brought him back up and proceeded down. And for years that bothered me. That you were calm? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Just It was gut-wrenching because at the time I kind of figured, you know, one, I was hurting so bad that I kind of felt like I had given up. I immediately went, that makes sense. Because from step one, you have put yourself in a place where danger is the most likely thing. Not success. Danger. Freezing, falling, getting hurt, like mm -hmm. hypothermia, going loopy drunk from altitude sickness, and whatever the two forms are. You've got all of these things that could happen to you. And you know this, I would have said psychologically, you'd be calm and you'd look under your arm, you'd see him falling. You know, this could happen. You also know that you're doing what you have to do to stop it. It stops. You did what you're supposed to do. It was successful and you move on. You shouldn't have all the sudden fear of a car accident. Well, <laughs> you are much wiser than I am. Because I had to have someone years later when I was still upset about that point out to me, you know, a very wise person point out to me, you had done everything you could do, everything. At that point, there was nothing else to do. And he was a minister. He says, you just put it in God's hand. He says, that wasn't a failure. That was the premier experience of being calm with that situation because you had done everything you could do. I have a non-minister 
example that, I'm sure you that just came to me. Yes. If you climb a tree full of monkeys With and you get to the hand. top <laughs> and you get... <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to say it again. <laughs> Nobody will get that joke. Um, if you climb a tree full of monkeys yeah. and you find monkeys at the top of that tree, you can't be surprised. And you can't think about it for years. You know, there were monkeys at the top of that tree that I expected to find monkeys at. You can't climb a mountain, know that you're so likely to have that exact experience that you had, and then be shocked and upset. No, the upset was... The, the lack I, of adrenaline and the lack had, of fear. Had I given up on myself? I, I used to be kind of, when I was preteen, maybe, kind of obsessed with the Jewish experience in Europe. Would I have been one of the people who survived the concentration camps, had the will to survive, or would I have given up and died? Huh. And on that day, it was like, which one was I? You were educated in what you were doing because you knew this was likely. You were neither. You were educated in what you were doing. Mm -hmm. So when it happened, you didn't freak out. Your adrenaline didn't go flying. Right. You yes. knew you were on the top of a freaking mountain. Yes. But I guess the thing was, is that my reaction wasn't what I expected it to be. But in hindsight, it was the best reaction to have. What you had trained But it took yourself. me years to learn that. Yeah. I had finally found what I had been seeking and didn't recognize that I had passed my own freaking test. Uh-huh. Because you wouldn't be climbing a mountain if you didn't know what you were doing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. How many Ironmans in were you at this point? Um, I think only one. How many mountains had you climbed? Uh, at that point, like when I say climb mountains, you don't really start climbing a mountain until about 20,000 feet. So there was probably three. So this was number four. Yeah, a couple of days later. Yeah, it was number four. Mm. Mm -hmm. So almost changing the subject, but not. Have you ever done anything where you <laughs> did feel that rush of adrenaline? Oh, uh, yeah. And scared shitless for those moments. One thing that, you know, that has to be said, and I'm not afraid to say this, and I've said it many, many times. I am the biggest chicken shit in the world. I call myself chicken shit all the time. You know, I am constantly scared. Constantly scared. And I don't have any problem being scared. There was a stupid movie in the 70s where they said, you're never more alive than when you're closest to death. And there's real truth to that. Mm -hmm. And there is, you know, definitely sometimes there is an amazing adrenaline rush when you come through the other side of something and it can be as addictive, I believe as any drug. Yeah. I think something happens to probably not to everyone, but something happens to your awareness when something big is happening, which is why I think really traumatic events people dream about for so long because it just sears itself into the memory the awareness in that moment 
for some reason is heightened. I think what you're, you're kind of talking about is like being in the zone. I'm talking about being thrust into the zone because something is happening that creates a, oh no. Yeah, where everything starts to go in slow motion. Like you memorize the fuck out of those long seconds. Yeah, like I'm sure when Charlie said falling and I look under my arm and see this guy going with a cartwheel, that cartwheel was slow motion. You know, I'm sure it was all happening way faster than I even remember. But there's just, I don't know, there's a real beauty in that being in that focused space. And I think that's, from what I've read, that's what the microdosing LSD would do, hmm. is it would put you into that space. But I think that's also why people are do get into really dangerous sports. You know, like oh, no question. skydiving off of cliffs and yeah. and all that. No question. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I am not an adrenaline junkie. This iteration of my life, I do not enjoy adrenaline. I happily avoid it. I don't want to drive dangerously. Doesn't feel good. But see, that's the thing is with my life in that, that period of time, I had a civil service job. I lived in, you know, the suburbs. Everything was safe. so conservative, safe, super, super safe. And I would choose to, for a moment in time, step out of that to someplace where I had ostensibly little control. Huh. You just made me realize something. I grew up without any control in a space of any explosion could happen at any moment. Mm -hmm. In a way, our childhoods were the exact opposite. Absolutely. And yes. so our choices in life, do I choose to keep safe? Do I choose to find safe? Mm -hmm. I absolutely find safe. And you don't choose to keep safe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just living in my home was dangerous. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, pick your poison, right? Life. It's fascinating. Yes. Back to your question of, do I overdose on it? Self-awareness is how I define it. I don't ever feel as though I can overdo it. Listening to podcasts, listening to others talk about their story, just because there's too many ways to talk about it. You know, it was right after we were talking about Brene Brown. She's all about shame and vulnerability, and there are just way too many words. I'm not all about shame. I've never defined vulnerability as one of my main words that I'm interested in. I am fascinated by vulnerability. I think self-awareness just really covers plenty of it. I'm interested in anything related to self-awareness with others, with me, with close friends. Getting to know the self is what life is about. Yeah, I get that. But if you get to where it becomes your crutch, I think you just have to keep moving forward. I believe some people do. And I even follow some on Instagram that do go, this is now who I am to the point that they even become annoying because it doesn't change for them. There doesn't seem to be growth. Mm -hmm. They're just all about this thing or this way of right. thinking. And it gets old. 
I don't want to fall into any ruts and just stay there. It's like you have a broken leg and you just keep going to the doctor for the broken leg. You know, you have to get better and move forward. I, I wasn't sure if you were going to turn it into a broken toe joke. <laughs> that wouldn't heal. <laughs> I considered it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So we always have to evolve. Right? You and I? Yes. Or humans? <laughs> we always have to evolve. Yeah. And I think that being 63, my opinions on many things have changed radically. If I had the same opinions at 63 as I did at 43, then there obviously had been no growth. Good point. We just have to continually work and challenge and evolve mm -hmm. and maybe surprise ourselves from time to time. Yeah. Which is a really good way of explaining why I don't think religion as a label, like this one right here, is my religion. Your tribe. Yeah. Religion as a label. I just don't think it is because nobody has truth, even though everybody insists they do. Nobody can prove to me that their truth is the truth. And so why pick a religion and stick with it forever to put it a real corny way? Why not just be willing to have a relationship with the divine and see where that takes you? How does that relationship grow? How does it get tested? Does it feel comfortable? And not make it about anybody agreeing with you. This is your life, your experience. Let your spirituality be instead of a religion enveloping you. If you have everything handed to you, I have another podcast episode called What We Believe. One of the things I say in there was I realized in Romania at 19 that I didn't have an opinion in a conversation because I hadn't been told what I believe. Mm -hmm. And so I sat there and went, am I really going to admit to myself that I don't know what I believe because I haven't been told what I believe? Mm -hmm. Inside of religion, you don't decide your beliefs. You have them handed to you on a plate. Here it is. This is what you believe. Yes. I just think if you're going to accept that, at, and, at any young age. You accept it and never challenge it. And never wonder. Never wonder. Yeah. If you reach 63 and you've got that same goddamn plate in front of you and that's your truth, what did you learn? What is your relationship with the divine? Because it's on that plate yeah, right in front of you. It, but it kind of brings to mind what's more important, to be content and happy or to struggle and find the truth? And actually, you never really get to the truth. Is it better? To just be a sheep? Yeah. And just follow that shepherd? Even though you don't know his name, you don't know where he's headed, you don't know where he's from, you don't know his yeah. motives, you don't know if he's being paid, you don't know if he's right. been promised a place but in heaven. What if you're happy? What if you're happy? Being that sheep? Being that sheep. Why not? You know? That's everyone's opportunity and choice. Most people's opportunity, but everyone's choice. Yeah. But if someone is happy and it's not affecting me or the people around them, who am I to say they shouldn't be yeah. doing it? If you've already taken the blue pill, like really, it, yeah. it's just for me to let you just walk on by. It's true. And I don't want to change anybody. 
I don't believe it's for anybody to change me or for me to change anybody at all. Every single person is having their own experience, which comes back to why try to convince anybody to agree with you? You're having your own experience and it's based on your life. How could anybody, let's just use you and I as the example, our childhoods were completely different. How could we agree on even most things, let alone many things, maybe few things? Our lives prior to 20 were completely different. So who we were conditioned into becoming is two very different people. Even if we grew up in the same country, how could we agree? Mm -hmm. Now let's raise us in different countries with different mm -hmm. everything. There's no way we're going to agree. I just feel like the arguments, which is code for war, are pointless. Well, the, the solution to that is to travel. I mean, because if you're just going to sit here in River City and judge people on the other side of the ocean, mm -hmm. you have no idea. Yeah. Clueless. Like, clueless. Totally clueless. Like those middle-aged white women who don't know that the Suez Canal affects mm -hmm. what they can order and they get bitchy about their inability to have what they want to drink for Yeah. Don't, don't start me down that path. <laughs> you know, uh, I have been so hypercritical of the, the white woman who has a sense of entitlement and who's... I don't want to open this can of worms, but whose religion is materialism. There's people who believe that the more spiritual they are, the better they are in the eyes of God, <clears throat> the more materialism they will have. And the materialism is a reflection of their divine relationship. And it's a badge of honor. I'm just dumbfounded by I that. I am too. You know, the I mean, we, have, we all see the, the very well-to-do, again, uh, we'll pound on, because you're a white woman, you know. Which is, yeah, which is why I say I don't want to be, well, I already went there. But, you know, whose life is really going to the mall and spending money on clothes, not you. Okay. But going to the mall and spending money on clothes that two weeks from now, they won't even know is in their closet. Right. Just rampant materialism. How shallow is that life? Mm. You yeah. made me think of a woman. So I work in a coffee shop, as you know, mm -hmm. and it's a pretty new coffee shop, less than six months old. Mm -hmm. And the other day, the computer for taking money in the position I was standing in just decided to stop working. And so I said to the woman, I'm afraid my computer isn't working. Do you mind if I take your payment to another computer? Super simple, basic question. This is a new store. Why, well, yes, it is. And computers. That's a perfect example of the entitled ignorant white woman that seems to be so prevalent in the world now. Why would I want to be even remotely associated with them to the point that I call myself pink. Now I don't call myself white. I'm pink. <laughs> yeah. No skin is white. Find me an albino whose skin is actually white, but that's by the by. I have a whole episode on it. I just don't understand 
how ignorance seems to be getting greater. Like, how do you not know that computers can't be relied on? And that's not what she's saying. I don't know that computers can't be relied on. What are you talking about? That's not what she's saying. She's saying, I should have whatever I want quickly. And I can't believe whatever's coming out of your mouth right now because I want what I want quickly. But this is a new store. Brand new computers. You're right. I still can't just make it work because you want it to. I'm dumbfounded. There's just too many directions to go with that. We are in Utah. You know what the people are like in Happy Valley. She is miserable. (laughs) She is a miserable person with herself and with others around her. Uh You can almost guarantee that. Uh I have another story, Uh actually. Yes. That is middle-aged white men. So it's not just women. I'm past middle-aged, so I won't be offended. It's not... Just middle-aged. I don't know. Okay. He was older than middle-aged, but that's what I'm going to call him. It's not just women. I regularly deal with both sexes like this. And because the majority of people in Happy Valley are white, whatever you want to call it. They're all on Prozac. So I'm in the drive-thru at this coffee shop and I hold the card reader out and he puts his card right at the edge of the card reader and start shaking. So I just hold still and he's starting to get impatient and like making puffing noises. And so I think, oh, he has Parkinson's. I'm just going to be patient. I'm just going to hold it right here because at some point he'll get it in and he's huffing and puffing. And then finally he just shoves it in. And I thought, oh, he's really frustrated with himself. While it's reading the card, I grab his drink, I hand him his drink, and he starts to unleash. You hurt my back! And he starts to explain how I made him reach so far. With shoes on, I'm six feet tall. My wingspan is six <laughs> foot one. I'm the longest person. You do that Michael Jordan poster, right? You know, the one where he has his arms out. <laughs> I am the longest barista that could hand the card reader out the window and I still haven't got it close enough to the man who could pull his car up at any distance to this window. And then he goes, can't you just take the card from me? I said, I would have happily done that. That was the first thing out of my mouth. I would have happily done that. I said it very respectfully. And he goes, well, you didn't tell me that was an option. And then he sped off. You know, when you pull up to a drive-thru and we're trying to get you your morning coffee quickly, I'm not going to go through your options, especially if you are holding a card and I'm holding a card reader. Like, we're not going to talk about options. I'm going to hold it to you. You're going to insert it. I'm going to hand you your coffee and then you're going to take it out. This isn't rocket science. And it happens every day in thousands of locations. And I was like, how miserable must his life be that that just unfolded? That's a deal. This is why I'm I have a tough time living. <laughs> yeah, you know, let me tell you a little story that's probably as far opposite of that as you could get. I don't know if I've ever told you this story before, but uh, I'm trying to think when it was. Maybe 2005. I was, and <laughs> this is 
This is where I can get into trouble. But um, I'm sure the statute of limitations has run out on most of the stuff. Not that there would be a statute of limitations, but I have to still be kind of careful. I was kind of working for this group monitoring human rights issues in Mima. They call it Mima when you're in Myanmar or Burma. And so at the time, there was a fairly good deal of slavery that was occurring. Who owns the company? An American company or Burmese company? No, no. Burmese companies. Okay. I mean, there was an issue, I don't know what year it was, with Chevron uh, building a natural gas pipeline, and they got sued because they were apparently using slave labor on the construction of the pipeline. But that's kind of a separate deal. So I was in central Burma trying to find examples of slavery. And it wasn't hard. I mean, going from the airport into town, like in a taxi, it was just really amazing because I'm going to meet somebody in Mandalay who's going to take me up into the mountains to see some examples of slavery. And <laughs> this is typical Burma, you know, it's just so messed up. And they have this brand new airport that they built. And there's not a road that connects it to the city. It's just a dirt road. And so they're building the road after they build the airport. And we're coming along and it's like, here's this construction crew working on the road. And it dawns on me. This is exactly what I came here to see. So I had the taxi guy stop. And I got out and the whole construction crew was women. And there's a whole reason for that. but. They had dug these trenches, basically, where the road was going to go, and they were putting crushed rock in down about 18 inches, where then the pavement would later go on top. And there were piles of rocks, and they were smashing the rocks into each other. They were breaking the rocks with rocks. They didn't even have hammers. Hmm. They were just breaking rocks with rocks. And putting them in to make the road base. That sounds horrible. And so, As somebody who has very painful hands. You know, we all have our little owls. Some people have like sore toes and things like that. In those places, you just have to get past it because there isn't a safety net or anything. And it wasn't my first rodeo in Burma by any means. But anyway, I meet up with a guy. He's going to take me up into the mountains. And he, by kind of trade, is a smuggler who would get things across the Thai border. And it's a highly militarized border because of different ethnic groups, ethnic minorities that are fighting against the government and things like that. So he had a fairly dangerous job. I'm getting back to the main point of where I wanted to be. And we were one evening chatting. You know, being a person from America, I was probably late 40s at the time. And, you know, worrying about my 401k and all that stuff and making the long-term plans and trying to be comfortable. I asked him about that. And I forget how the conversation all went. But he basically said, he had a family. And he said... We have enough food for today, and we have enough food for tomorrow. 
And the day after that is too far away to think about. And here I am, stressed out about a 401k that I won't need for 20 years. Hmm. And he was one of the happiest people I've known. And the people in his community who had very, very little, but they had enough. Wouldn't a statement like that define slave labor? That two days is too far off? Uh-huh. That he's obviously paid like a slave. Well, he was a smuggler. He wasn't a slave. But I think the opposite of that is true, is, is that the only security, and I think Deepak Chopra says this, the only security we have in life is to be secure and insecurity. <laughs> That's it. And part of my journey has been to have the confidence that it doesn't matter what's dealt to me, I'll be able to deal with it because of the experiences that I've had. Mm. And I think that that's where he was. Two days away, why do I need to think about it? Mm -hmm. Why do I need to screw up this moment mm -hmm. thinking about it? I know I can deal with it. Mm -hmm. I'll be good. And I think here in the West and with the guy with the credit card and the woman with the computer, they're not good with it. They right. don't have the confidence or the wherewithal to know they can deal with tomorrow because they're so upset with these really little mm -hmm. things today. I was actually saying to our friend Roger not two days ago that I personally, when I decided to divorce and keep my home, had changed jobs to keep my home and afford it single and that job didn't work out. And so I found myself unemployed and now with a house payment. And that was a very stressful time for money and me having to figure it out. And month after month, things always worked out. And I finally said to myself, when are you going to believe, Natalie, that everything always works out? Are you going to insist every month that you're stressed first and you spend the month stressed until there's a point at which the bills are paid and you're okay. And then you have a couple days free from stress before a new month starts again. You're stressed all over again. When if you just look behind you, everything always works out and you've got tons of proof of it. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to choose? Stress or belief in what's already happened? Mm -hmm. I finally went, I think... I have enough proof to trust everything always works out. And Roger said to me, I can't do that. I cannot do that. And I was like, dang. Yeah, single homeowner right here who has now nine years of it. It's proof. Everything always works out. I think those ladies uh, who are breaking rocks, it doesn't. Yeah, it it's a pretty brutal life. Yeah. Very different world. Not to bring it right back to reincarnation. <laughs> I feel like that that too is proof because happenstance dictates where you get born and what your struggles are. And so it just doesn't make sense to me that one life would be enough. It makes way more sense that 3,000 lives would be enough. Yeah. You know, I told you that I kind of had this thing when I was growing up with the Holocaust and yeah. wondering. and. The Holocaust of my generation was Cambodia. And 
I had this thing that I wanted to go to Cambodia during their Holocaust. And maybe like my pipe dream was meeting a guy who was born the same day I was. Hmm. And if not for the grace of God, therefore go I. Yeah. You know, and meeting him and being able to, I don't know, just understand it. That's a really interesting comparison to want to start from. We could have been born into each other's bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I tried to get into Cambodia one time and couldn't do it. The border, the war, you know, it was just not happening. And then the following year, I did. And I met a guy who was not my birthday, but we were the same age. Hmm. And, you know, we became very instant friends. And he was my guide for a while. I don't know. I think so. sometimes we get into our own little world, especially here mm -hmm. in Happy Valley. Mm -hmm. People are in their own little world where it's that instant gratification and life is simple. Mm. I feel like the Internet has made it worse because the Internet has made life simpler. Which has made minds simpler. I think we just all have to get out more. Yeah. And really, we need to serve each other. Because if we're just being served, you know. Mm -hmm. you I know. agree. I mean, and certainly some of the most rewarding times I've had in my life are when you do things for people you do not know. And you do it anonymously and they will never have an opportunity to pay you back. You know, that is really, in my opinion, the, like, true happiness mm. is being able to do that, doing that. Or even yeah. people that know you're doing it but would still never be able to pay you back because they couldn't finish medical school, <laughs> to, use a, <laughs> to use a private joke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we just have it too good here. Yeah. And we're just due for a fall. I agree. And it's the bridges that can see it. Well, not all the bridges, but again, I come back to people our age are bridges to the old world and the new world. You're not my age. You're a baby. Well, I'm using, I'm calling myself a bridge. So okay. you are a bridge because you're alive right now and you were alive prior to what's going on right now. All the BS yeah. in this world. So you are a bridge. Okay. Hey, this is your show. I guess I just have to go along. <laughs> You're a bridge, goddammit. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. you said a second ago, we need to serve more and be served less. And I don't know if you directly meant it how I heard it, because I serve coffee. And it's so true. If that woman with the computer issue or the man with the credit card were in my shoes instead of receiving the coffee, they would see themselves completely differently because they would be serving. And I know that you weren't yeah, thinking no, no, in that exact I, yeah. capacity because we do need to serve one another more. But yeah. it just kind of hit me when you said that, like, oh, yes, if they were in my shoes... They would hear themselves differently. 
they would hear other people saying those exact things differently. They'd probably be really embarrassed. I think the name of this podcast needs to be Not Chats with Larry on Life Experience or Life Experiences. I think that none of us have the answers. We're just stumbling through life. Yeah. I have mm. no answers. Unfortunately, I feel like I do, but that's because I have a lot of young friends and I am always going, oh God, I had this problem. Let me tell you how I solved it. <laughs> oh, you're experiencing that thing? I experienced that thing too. Let me give you some perspective that really helped me. <sighs> that sounds really arrogant, but you know, I'm old enough to have experience and I have a lot of friends who aren't old enough and I have a lot of friends who haven't traveled. And so my experiences are coming from places they have yet to be or opportunity. Hopefully have yet to be. Yeah, hopefully. But then again, here in Happy Valley at 19, you know, they could just get married, crank out a bunch of kids and I must that's do. it. Yeah. That's more common than not. Yeah. People who aren't familiar with Utah and who aren't familiar with the term Happy Valley, I'm going to just let that live. There is a place in Utah that everybody knows is Happy Valley. And not because mm -hmm. we're happy, but because everybody pretends. pretends that they're happy. Yes. Yep. All right. Okay. What was the name of the podcast again? <laughs> uh, I think it's, we have no answers. Okay. So. Yes. No answers. Yes. We just have yeah. life experience. All the more reason to do shrooms. I'm going to do much better in the next life. <laughs> Nat and Chat is brought to you by seedsandcells.net.